Hey friends, how's it going? This is, uh, we haven't done a podcast in a little while. It's been a kind of busy time, but um, I'm beginning to work on the next season of the Voyagers podcast. And so we've had some opportunities to start talking to a few people and do some interviews. And we got the incredible pleasure of talking with uh, the author of the new book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. And this is a book about um, Celtic Christianity or Celtic spirituality by John Philip Newell, who is an incredible spiritual teacher. Um, he was a mentor of, for Seth um, in, his, in his spiritual path. And I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy the conversation that Seth and I had with him, talking about his new book, talking about his path and some of the developments in his life. Um, and just the chance to sit at the feet of an incredibly wise and humble man was just uh, it was an incredible pleasure. So, um, just want to, you guys, please enjoy this conversation. Um, love to share this one, please, with people, share it with others if they want to need to hear it. But both Seth and I just kind of chewed on this conversation and just, it was just, it was like a massage for the soul. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, beautiful day here on Maui. Um, it's awesome time of year. So the temperatures are slowly starting to come down a little bit. So it's just kind of beautiful and lovely and and uh, yeah, so anyway, enjoy this conversation and then we'll see you on the next podcast. We'd like to just, I'd like to just get into some kind of um, simple questions. I mean, in general, in terms of the book, um, Sacred Earth, uh, Sacred Soul, which by the way, kind of just blew my mind. Um, I, it, it's a general kind of overview of Celtic Christianity. You know, a lot of your past work has been, you know, kind of focused on Celtic Christianity, but for our audience, can you? Can you kind of give us just a small summary, not a small summary, but as, as summarized as you can regarding Celtic Christianity and how you were introduced to it and where you started? Yes. Uh, I, I first became aware of this stream of wisdom in, in our Christian household. Uh, and it's a stream that we now refer to as Celtic spirituality, but that that is a fairly modern term. But we use it to refer to this uh, consistency of vision that begins as early as the uh, second century in Gaul, in the Celtic world of Gaul, and can be traced right through the centuries to today. Uh, major prophetic figures continuing to give voice to a vision of the, the earth as essentially sacred, and also speaking of that which is deepest in every human being as of God. Um, divine sacred yeah that that clash um one of the things in the book that really just kept coming out to me obviously is someone myself who grew up in in a pentecostal um kind of evangelical christian background the clash in theological that turning of of the the nature of a human being being sacred versus the nature of the human being being opposed to god and being sinful um, that seemed to be like the resounding theme throughout the book as we're walking through history with these different um, these different leaders and 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 thought leaders in, in Celtic Christianity. I I I'm still kind of hit with a sadness about when that clash kind of when, essentially when that when the, the the sinful theology won won out. You know, I find my I found myself grieving a bit about the damage that it seems that has been done by that yes. is it do you feel like it's part of your mission to kind of try and heal that yes absolutely and i i think it's a it's a good and important thing david to, to grieve 
Um, I, I think that there's a lot about our Western Christian history and inheritance that it's important to name and, and grieve. Um, and much of it is related to this early doctrine that came to be referred to as the doctrine of original sin, in which it was taught that what is deepest in us is opposed to God rather than being of God. And that has enormous implications for how we see ourselves, uh, how we treat the other, and especially the, the so-called other, the, the, the one on the other side of a religious division or a nationhood division or race or sexual orientation division. Uh, and it, it has had um, enormous consequences in terms of how we view ourselves, but also uh, our relationships with one another. And uh, part of what I explore in, in the book is that deep within our Celtic treasure um, as Christians is, is this inheritance of a radically different way of seeing. Uh, and, and that is, it's not a naive perspective. It, it's not pretending or suggesting that we are not in need of mercy and grace. Uh, one of the earliest expressions of this um, tension between Celtic wisdom and the teachings of, the, of what became imperial Christianity, uh, one of the first tensions or debates happened in the fourth century between Pelagius, uh, a monk from the Celtic world, and uh, the great sort of teacher of the fourth century in imperial Christianity, St. Augustine of Hippo. And uh, it's interesting to look at that debate because it, the, 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 the misunderstanding of the Celtic just keeps uh, happening over the mm -hmm. centuries. Mm -hmm. So Augustine hears Pelagius say that what is deepest in every person is of God, that what is deepest in you, uh, what is deepest in me is sacred. And he interprets that to mean, oh, uh, if that's the case, then you must be saying that we don't need grace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he sets up this uh, opposition or tension between nature and grace. And uh, when we actually uh, get into Pelagius's teachings and when we, when we look at all the great teachers in this stream, uh, it's very clear that all of them are saying that we need both nature and grace. That is, uh, our nature is essentially of God, it's sacred, uh, but we've become disconnected from uh, that divine nature of the image of God within us. And grace is given not in opposition to our nature, but rather grace is given to reconnect us with our nature. Um, grace is not given that we might become something other than ourselves or somehow more than natural, but it's given that we might become truly natural, that we may uh, truly fly with the creativity, um, the, the beauty, the wisdom of the divine that is at the very core of our being. Yeah. I have, I have, oh, go ahead, Seth, you have a question? Yeah, I do. I do. And I, I, I always have. I have many questions I've wanted to ask you over the years. And when I attended the, the Celtic schools of consciousness, it's, it's fascinating to watch, like it's what to, to watch you balance the, the desires of everyone to talk to you. And at the same time, your desire to have those conversations and how you have to maintain your own space and everything is always fascinating. I learned a lot by watching that. Um, but I have a question for you that 
came up when I was on Iona way back, way back in the day. I think I was in yes. 2013 or something like that. And I followed you around a lot, you know, I, I, you know, asking you all kinds of difficult questions. But we had a, there was a minister in our group that, remember, we had the group from my school. And then we had a lot of like kind of former ministers. And there was a guy who he was a, he was a universalist Unitarian minister. And, and at the time I was, I, I, when I came to Iona, I was wrestling with my atonement theory that I was in that space where I was in a deconstructing space. And right in that space, I was like asking that big question that so many people that deconstruct ask and Celtic Christianity. The only reason I still, I still even carry the label of Christian is because of my interaction, my experience on Iona. <clears throat> and, and I was, re I was asking you questions about this, but, but when we would have these times in the pub, I remember there was a point where a bunch of us were around this, this Unitarian Universalist minister. And, and the question that kept coming up towards him was, but what's the point? What's the point of a church? What's the point of a gathering? What's the point of a building? What's the point of a community? And we, I realized that none of us understood a relationship with God without that sacrificial kind of transactionary relationship. And, and what you're articulating in these books and what these saints were articulating was a, was a Christianity that isn't a transaction and yet it's still a church. And so I'm, and, and I'm, I'm asking, I'm prefacing this question by, because I'd like to hear about if, if you're okay with talking about your personal experience of giving up your ordination in the church of Scotland mm. and and because I, especially the chapter about Alexander John Scott, I, I just saw a parallel between what you're experiencing and what he experienced. And, and so I'm very curious about um, what's the point, you know, through this lens, through this lens of this theology, like what's the point of church? What's, what's the point of building? What's the point of community? Um, mm -hmm. Why, why do, why is this a thing? And what does that look like in this vision? Yeah. Does that make sense? That's, that's um, a great and, and vast question. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask that too. <laughs> uh, typically. But um, uh, one of my favorite teachers in this stream, and um, I, I give uh, chapter uh, three to him, is John Scottus Eugenia, the ninth century Irish teacher. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, Eriugina says is that we, and by that he means humanity, we, we suffer from soul forgetfulness. Uh, that is, we have forgotten who we are. And the more we forget who we are made of God, the, the more we forget that what is deepest in us is sacred and what is deepest in the other is sacred. Uh, the, the more we uh, uh, treat one another as other than sacred and and the more and more we don't access those uh, sacred resources of the divine uh, deep within us and deep within one another so uh, Eriugina speaks ab about us suffering from soul forgetfulness and it's in that context that he speaks of Christ as our memory that is, uh, he sees Christ as coming to um, restore uh, an awareness in us of our true, true essence, of our true depth. Uh, he speaks of Christ also as our epiphany or as our revelation. And um, the word revelation comes from the Latin root revelare, which is to lift the veil. So he sees Christ as coming uh, not to reveal or disclose a foreign truth 
or to disclose something that is foreign to us, but rather uh, is coming to disclose to us what is at the very heart of our being. Um, so it's an intimate truth, it's a personal truth that Christ is revealing. Um, and I see uh, that as the sort of central, I mean, he, he, the Christ figure is the central figure in, in our Christian inheritance. I think he can call us to our own Christhood uh, to know that that that, uh, that essence, that core of our being is made of God. And I think that everything that we do with, within, the, um, within the community of the church, uh, whether it is in our relationships with one another, whether it is in our prayers, in our rituals, in our pilgrimages, in our, in our spiritual disciplines, I believe it's all to do with uh, a remembering and uh, a reaccessing of those true depths of our being and practices around repentance and forgiveness are also about um, getting in touch again, turning around again to be reconnected to, to what is first and in that sense, most original in us. Um, so, so uh, we find is in someone like uh, Pelagius, again, one of the first teachers in this stream, uh, one of the spiritual practices that he's passionate about, and he's, he's the first historically to, to mention it, is the importance of the Anamkara relationship, the importance of having a lover of the soul or a friend of the soul. And he says uh, about our relationship with our Anamkara, uh, and of course, one can have um, many anamkaras or uh, the, the community of faith that one belongs to can be seen as a type of community of anamkara relationship. But he says um, that we are to show everything to our anamkara and we're to hide nothing. And uh, he is not thereby meaning that my anamkara, that the person who is the lover of my soul or the people who are the lovers of my soul, it's not to say that they know more of what is within me than I do, but in the, in the very act of me trying to disclose, trying to give expression to, to the stirrings that are in my soul, um, it's, it's in the act of trying to express what is within me that I come into a greater consciousness of my, of my depths. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that is also a really important process, I believe, in moving towards acting in relation to, to what my true essence is. So that I think, you know, in my relationship with you, Seth, for instance, if, if I'm uh, giving expression to the, the uh, yearnings within me for, um, uh, for living compassionately, uh, for seeing the other as I see myself, as uh, living out of that truth so that I'm, I'm speaking uh, a compassion that's not just looking after my family, but the family down the street, or it's not just looking at, after uh, my nation, but it's looking after the well-being of another nation, or not just looking after the well-being of the human species, but looking after the, the uh, uh, interrelated well-being of all species. Uh, if I can express some of some of those yearnings of the divine from within me, 
um, if I do that in my relationship, if if um, if uh, in your in your presence, because I sense that you love me and trust me, I give expression to that. Then I'm much more likely to be enabled to live that vision and live that truth. So um, that that is what I see as as the sort of overarching um, uh, vision of of uh, of the place of Christ in our. Uh, Christian inheritance and the place of ritual, the place of community, the place of prayer and spiritual practice is about constantly remembering what it is to be made of God. Yeah. Um, you mind if I ask another one, Dave? I, I wanna... Yeah, I have, yeah, you know, go, just go. Yeah, it's yeah, good stuff. I, I, yeah. I, I have a, um, I, so I, I, I enjoy to, um, when it comes to theology, you know, Celtic theology is, an absolutely beautiful stream and discovering that that ancient way of of understanding discovering you use terms like pre-christian a lot and then and i think that there is a you know in the world today there's you know especially like here in the west like in america we have this there's a perspective that i think a lot of people that are christians believe that what they believe is christianity they go well this is christianity not recognizing just how young the theological streams are that they're coming from and so to discover something that goes that 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 predates the roman church that predates uh you know uh, constantine and 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 that entire experience is very very life-giving and and i i remember in my interactions with you 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 had this desire to bring this to the uh, to a to the millennial generation to the younger generation because when i would attend the celtic schools of consciousness it was a lot of older people a lot of people in their 60s 70s 80s 80s and i'm curious about um when it comes to to how this what this has to say and how to bring this to a younger audience i'm curious about your insights over just the last 10 years like how that's how that's gone like how how is it going in, in coming to because i i see a stream you talk about it in the book a stream of people leaving the church younger people searching for something deep are you seeing a resonance with with that ancient stream in this newer generation now Yes, I, I think that uh, we're, we're living in a, in a, a time of, of great spiritual change. Um, I, I think that the uh, religion as, as we know it is, is, um, is, is collapsing all, about, all around us. I mean, I, I think one only has to look around uh, on a Sunday morning in, in most of our uh, traditional Christian churches uh, to realize that in another uh, 25 years, um, it, it will simply not be as, as we've known it. So an enormous collapse is happening. Uh, I think what's exciting about this moment uh, is to look at um, what are the yearnings that have led many of us to be dissatisfied with, with our traditional Western Christian inheritance. Um, I'm, I'm working on um, my, my next sort of major piece of writing now. And, it, and it's all about um, the, the spiritual exile that, that many people are in the midst of. Um, and I, uh, I'm telling the story or looking at that big story of spiritual exile in part through my, my own journey. And part of that journey over the last year has been the decision to relinquish my ordination as a Church of Scotland minister uh, in the realization that uh, the, the Church of Scotland's statements of faith uh, 
um, which are rooted in the, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, which were expressed in the third and fourth centuries when Christianity was getting into bed with empire and, and was becoming imperial religion. So uh, in, important historical creeds like the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed that the Church of Scotland stands by, but also its 16th century Reformation creeds. Uh, I, I realized that uh, 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 there's nothing in those statements of faith that actually reflect or give utterance to what is uh, most dear to me ar around uh, the sacredness of the earth and the sacredness of every human being. Uh, so it was important as an act of integrity to, to no longer fly un under that banner. Um, why was I calling myself a reverend of the Church of Scotland? when in, in fact my own church was not giving express expression uh, formally to, to what is most important to me. And I think that um, in this time of change, there are uh, some who, who, um, who are definitely uh, looking beyond the four walls of the church to, to find vision and to find spiritual practice and community uh, to move forward. There are others who are still staying uh, within the church as we've known it, but who are hungry and who are longing, but that they, they're also uh, knowing a sense of indebtedness to our Christian history. And I understand that. And I think I'm part of it, part of that, wanting to be grateful for much of what we've received. And then there are people in my, in my, um, uh, the generation of my my children, for instance, who um, who simply don't see their spiritual journey at all in relation to what um, traditional Christianity has been, they are following some of their deep instincts and yearnings uh, to develop a spiritual vision and spiritual practice that more deeply connects them to the sacredness of the earth and to care of the earth and uh, spiritual vision and spiritual practices that free them to deeply honor the wisdom of other traditions and the meditative practices of, of many, many great spiritual traditions from the East, for instance. So their assessment of, of what is to be sought relates to uh, some of their essential a vision and sense of relationship with the sacredness of the earth and, and of every human being. So on that spectrum, uh, we're in this uh, time of enormous change. And uh, part of what I think we need to focus on is the, the kernel, as it were, of the yearnings that, that have either taken us outside the church or taken have, are taking us well beyond the bounds of Western Christianity as, as we've known them. Mm -hmm. And uh, my fascination with this time of spiritual exile has uh, led me to get in touch a bit more with the word diaspora or diaspora. We sometimes speak of this sort of uh, diaspora of, of our Christian brothers and sisters who began life within the church, but aren't, aren't many of them are now sort of outside the walls of Christianity as we've under, understood them and defined them. But
But the the word diaspora, uh, although we have used it, you know, of the Jewish people, or we've used it of the African um, American diaspora uh, that resulted from the slave trade, or we speak of the Celtic diaspora of, of people who were scattered from Scotland during the Highland clearances and and the Irish potato famine and so on. Although we often use the word diaspora or diaspora to refer to those in exile, the word itself means a scattering of seed, it's spora, seed uh, scattered throughout. Uh, so I see these, these yearnings as like seeds that we uh, are carrying. And, uh, and the exciting thing for me is to pay attention to what these seeds of yearning are giving rise to. Um, in our spiritual practices, in our, um, I mean, something like the Church of the Wild, uh, I think is a really interesting expression of the desire to connect spirituality with a reverence for the earth, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here, okay? Um, I, I, yeah. uh, I am curious, using your book. They don't have curveballs there. Oh, they have. I, well, you can throw. In can you do a curveball in cricket? I don't think you can. No, you can't. I'm I'm, uh, I'm sufficiently uh, mid-Atlantic to understand that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you you know, I I see your book as a it's a Christology essentially as a hermeneutical lens for understanding so much of what's happening in the world, and I'm curious, uh, just current event, what's happening in Afghanistan. I'm very, the way. Afghanistan seems as a almost as a geographical space seems to always want to pull itself back to a very uh, to a very archaic form of relationship with God and Islam. I'm very curious. Hey Seth, hold on, hold on, back up. Something's going on with your mic, I think. There we go. That's better. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and just do your question. So. Um, using using Celtic Christianity, using your book even as a as a hermeneutical lens, in a sense, I'm curious what your perspective is on 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 uh, Afghanistan and how that space seems to always want to pull itself back to a very primitive, very archaic relationship with the divine and with God and with Islam itself. And so, I mean, we're talking about Christianity and this the you know the diaspora of, of Christians. Uh, that are, are being scattered in this way. I'm curious, like, do you see, do you see this same thing in, in the Islamic world? And, and how do you understand, like, what's, I think everyone here is kind of going, but why, why is there not a evolutionary pull forward? Why so easily does it, does it go back to that? I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that in the West where all of a sudden we all just go back to a sacrificial relationship with an angry God. Why is that evolution not taking place in that space or is it? And I just can't see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of one of the interesting things about um, the the Indian uh, Islamic world, if I could sort of visit that expression of of Islam, in order to try to understand a bit more of what's happening in in the Afghanistan context, it's interesting to observe historically that uh, before, before the 19th century and before the sort of um, the, the, the heyday of the, of the British Empire and the, the British Raj in, in India, uh, the, the most predominant expression of Islam in, in India at that stage was, was the Sufi 
Muslim tradition, which is um, which is a much more mystical uh, tradition, is uh, an expression of that part of Islam that uh, that is looking for and is reverencing the sacredness in the earth and and in every human being, uh, and and is accentuated. Uh, or is characterized mu much more by um, sort of ecstatic forms of prayer and community um, and about sort of release, releasing the, the, the energies of the divine within us uh, rather than a sort of religious law-based um, expression of, of Islam. Interestingly, uh, uh, the, the factor that, that the negative factor that affects Indian Islam in the 19th century during the time of the British Empire is a very heavy-handed form of Western uh, Christianity, um, a, a type of uh, rigid evangelicalism that tried to conquer um, Islam in India and that uh, religion, Christ, Western Christianity in its British expression was like the arm of empire, as it were, sort of trying to, trying to force a conformity or trying to force conversion. That produced a reaction in the Islam of India. Uh, and it was in that context that, that some of the, the, the more extreme forms of uh, Sunni Islam, for instance, um, start start being being expressed uh, so in a sense um, some of those more extreme forms of Islam uh, responsibility for for creating that fundamentalist extreme reaction in many ways lies at the door of, of the West and Western imperialism and trying to impose its way on other parts of the world uh, and uh, the, the horrendous chaos that we're witnessing in Afghanistan uh, today. Again, I believe uh, responsibility for much of that lies uh, with the West uh, because we have uh, repeatedly acted like empire. And um, I, I uh, remember years ago in, in Canada uh, giving a talk in Ottawa and uh, the theme of my talk was very much looking at the prologue to John's gospel and especially the words in the prologue to John's gospel that speak of the, the, the light, the true light that enlightens every person coming into the world. And in attendance at the talk that night was a Mohawk elder. And he had been invited to be there in part so that he could reflect for us uh, on any of the resonances between Celtic wisdom and uh, native or First Nations wisdom in the Mohawk context. At the end of my talk, he, he stood this strong, physically strong uh, young native leader and um, with tears in his eyes. And he said, as I've been listening to these themes tonight, I have been wondering where I would be tonight. I've been wondering where my people would be tonight. I've been wondering where we would be as a Western world tonight if the Christianity that had come to us from Europe centuries ago had come expecting to find light in us. Mm -hmm. uh, 
these words um, cut, cut my heart open with truth uh, that night, uh, listening to him. And I see many of the conflicts and uh, places of violence and wrong in the world as very directly related to uh, uh, um, religious expressions of Christianity that have been the arm of empire. And tragically, uh, we've produced reaction um, and, instead, of, um, instead of nurturing relationship with uh, the, uh, the beauty and the wisdom of other nations and other uh, religious traditions. Well, it's really well, really well spoken. I, yeah, I, I often wonder. Um, I mean, you, you can see it when people begin to to cease to live in resistance to what the world around them, and they release that judgment. It's almost like a space gets created for the light within to actually grow in itself. And I, and I wonder, it, it maybe, it, possibly, are we in a time where the where where the world has evolved enough that we can finally everyone can back up. And we can leave that space in a, in, a, in a way, leave it alone enough that, that the light within Islam itself can begin to grow and flicker in that space. And what does that evolution look like there if we can all just back away, you know? And I see that even in the president's speech the other day, he's saying we've got to just, we've all needed to finally back up. When he talked about it, he goes, it's the graveyard of empires, right? That there's this space yeah. that needs to, so that the flame of Islam itself can actually begin to grow in that space. Yes. Yeah. The idea of, of respecting Islam as a religion is going to take a long time for Americans to, to get on board with, you know, it's been from a branding standpoint, Islam has a bad brand in the United States and it's been so toxic that all we can think of is images of the Taliban with guns. And instead of understanding um, that there, that like all the other wonderful world traditions, there is this beautiful, beautiful side to it. And, it's a, that's a tough one for Americans to chew on right now. It's a really hard, I think all they see yeah. is two, $2.3 trillion spent and thousands of lives. And, and um, yes. yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough yeah. one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so instructive to also be reminded that um, most of the sort of non-Christian world, when they hear the word Christian or when they hear the word church, uh, what they immediately think of is a fundamentalist Christian mm -hmm. expression. Absolutely. Um, so we are often seen through that sort of tragically distorted lens, um, j just as um, so many in the West uh, see Islam th through, through the lens of that extreme and contorted version of it. Uh, one of the things I've, I've been uh, very aware of in my own journey is just how transformative it has been for me personally to be in close relationship with teachers from other traditions. And I, I think that uh, the, the more we can do to bring our communities into uh, personal relationship with, yeah. with one another, the more we will be liberated from, from these stereotypes of, 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 of the other. Um, and uh, and you know the same is true on on many of the tragic uh, divides in our world. Um, it's uh, 
coming to know and and uh, respect those of different sexual orientation or it's coming to know and uh, respect and love those of other sort of races and other nationhoods it's these uh, relationships that form the basis of of a transformed way of seeing because then then we we no longer uh, treat the other in in terms of um a projection or a name or a label, uh, we are being invited to be in relationship with the heart of their being, which is much deeper than uh, religious, uh, racial, sexual orientation labels. Yeah. Um, um, do you have another question, Seth? I do, of course. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you one more, and then I'm gonna transition into kind of a closing, some closing thought stuff. Um, and I okay. take, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, I, I, so uh, the, the term Peregrini, right, the, the wandering Celtic teacher in this tradition, um, the, the ancient tradition, I, I'm curious if, you know, I've been watching the evolution of your work, you know, from when I met you, it was, it was kind of heading in a different direction, but you've very much gone kind of back to that. It's almost like you're returning to the heart of the Celtic tradition as a Peregrini, as a wandering teacher. And I'm curious where you see, where you see the next 10 years of your life, you know, going as you... As, is, is that what you are now? You're a peregrine? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I suppose if, if I'm to accept any label or term, I, I'd be happy with that one. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the peregrine uh, or the, the wandering teacher in, in the um, Celtic stream is, is really uh, pointing to... to um, a, a teacher or um, a journeyer or a voyager, to, to use the language of your podcast, um, who is not primarily uh, traveling under the, uh, the auspices of, of a religious tradition and sets of doctrines, um, but is forever looking for one's place of resurrection. Um, I love that that definition of the Peregrini, that the, the Peregrini in the historical Celtic tradition is in a sense setting sail to look for one's place of resurrection. Where, where is the place of new beginnings, the, the place of a greater creativity, the place of greater compassion, the place of greater wisdom. Uh, and, and to uh, always do that in, in, a, in a sense of, uh, awareness that we are becoming i mean the the uh, this is the, this is uh, an aspect of the universe that that i think is so exciting and that is it is forever unfolding it's forever finding new form new expression and anything that isn't unfolding or finding new expression is is finished um, in the universe it's an indication that is dying rather than continuing to live and unfold and uh, and I think that there is that that freedom in in the um, Peregrini or the Scottish Bagans, as they were called, the wandering Scottish teachers. And um, I I um, I know, and I increasingly am experiencing the freedom of of being a wandering teacher, forever looking for the place of new beginnings, new life, not only for myself, but um, but for the world and, and for one another and relationship. Um, having said that, I think that there's also something quite 
uh, lonely at times about the path of the peregrini or the, the wandering teacher. And uh, I know that I find myself uh, longing for times such as we had together on, on Iona, Seth, and, and that is a taste of the community that, that is, I think, trying to become. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that m- many of us are really hungering for the depth and commitment uh, that can only come with community and longer term relationship. But I think we can find these without necessarily going to the uh, the very stultified, unchanging, fixed um, uh, ways and practices of of a lot of our Western Christian inheritance. Mm. Wow, okay. I guess I'd like to kind of, obviously, you know, we try and keep these interviews to an hour just because I want to respect time, but also like these podcast episodes are about 35, 40 minutes. Um, I really like to talk about spiritual practice. Um, You know, the wonderful thing about the book that just kind of, I really enjoyed was it was part of history lesson. I mean, really in-depth, wonderful history of about the Celtic world that I just did not have the details on. Um, It was part you know, kind of an extrapolation of, of the wisdom that can be taken from these spaces. And, but then it was also part spiritual practice at the end of each chapter, kind of going through these practices of, of, of meditative, you know, prayer. What is, what do you do? Like, what is your spiritual practice? How do you approach your day in that way? And I mean, if you could share that with our audience, it'd be awesome. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm very, um, really delighted that you raised that question, uh, David, because um, uh, our School of Earth and Soul, which was um, previously known as the School of Celtic Consciousness, uh, and we shifted from from that term in part because uh, I found that no one, no one really, uh, very few people knew how to spell consciousness. And uh, I even had an email address with consciousness in it. And I mean, it, it eliminated most of, most of the emails that were right. coming. No, the SCI, <laughs> SCI throws everybody off. You can't, yes, you can't do it. That's yeah. right. So um, in, in, the, we described the school of earth and soul as a Celtic initiative of study, spiritual practice and compassionate action. So for me, it's never just about study. And I mean, this new book comes out of years of study, years of sort of academic reflection, digging, and so on. So I'm, I, I revere, I really honor the way of study. Uh, but it's never just about study. For me, it, it, the study needs to be coupled with uh, spiritual practice. And the combination of... Uh, of study or reflection and spiritual practice is one that strengthen, strengthens us for the holy work of compassionate action uh, for one another and for the world. So I, I always see it as a real stream and, um, and I pay very close attention to, to that stream and uh, trying to find that balance in, in my own life. So for me, uh, the, the, the most pronounced spiritual practice on, on a daily basis is what I do uh, first thing uh, around the dawn. I, I, love, I love the dawn. I, I love that transition time between darkness and light, between night and day. And the Celtic world loves these sort of liminal uh, 
times and so many great traditions have loved this coming of the new light and have celebrated it as a time of meditation. So for me, um, you know, when I when I wake up, when I come from, uh, when I begin to move from the dream world into sort of consciously waking, um, I think, oh yeah, you know, um, what I get to do uh, right away today is meditate. And I have a half hour of silent prayer. And I position myself in relation to the East uh, so that I can be more aware of the um, uh, coming of light. Of course, <laughs> in Scotland, um, the sun rises very late in the winter. Um, right. So I'm yeah. well in advance <laughs> of the sun rising, but in the summer, <laughs> I mean, the sun is rising at about two o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> I tend not to catch it there. But yeah. um, you know, I literally position myself so that I can be aware of the growing light. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, I know um, it, with uh, absolute certainty yeah. in my life that if I ever think um, I don't have time for meditation this morning, you know, I've got A, B, C to get done before noon. If I ever go down that route, it, it becomes very clear to me that, um, that I'm beginning an unproductive and unintegrated day. Yeah. Um, so I, I pay really close attention to that very simple practice of um, meditation, meditative prayer. And I do it on my own um, uh, often. And often, of course, I'm blessed to be able to do it with, uh, with others. Um, uh, Ali, my wife, is a great believer in that practice, so we sometimes share it. Um, I, um, I also love these, these times on Iona. I mean, during our Iona pilgrimage week, the first thing we do is to gather in the... Um, uh, the 11th century chapel of St. Michael. And we have a half hour of silent prayer. And, uh, and so I, I love that. And that, that's the real bed, bedrock for me of, of spiritual practice. There, there are other, lots of other spiritual practices that, that I'm a great believer in. You know, we, on, on Iona, we always have a, a time uh, close to, before the evening meal, when we gather in one of the other um, ancient chapels and and do a simple ritual around earth, air, fire, or water, using one of the elements as as a way of opening our eyes to see the light in one another, or um, to uh, recover the balance of the feminine and the masculine within us and between us. Um, and I'm a great believer in the in the spiritual practice of pilgrimage and uh, I mean we're living in a very exciting time when when so many people are um, discovering again the important relationship between what we do with our bodies and and how that affects our souls or our spirits and um, uh, I am a believer in very rigorous spiritual practices I mean on Iona when we have our a day of walking the nine mile route around the island that that is always the most significant day of the week in my experience something happens in the group and not only within individuals but between people uh, and there's something good about pushing 
one's body beyond sort of the comfortable level. Um, I think uh, it's not about sort of beating the body up or sort of pushing ourselves too much, but I think that there's a beautiful relationship between the commitment to try to push oneself physically on pilgrimage and the awarenesses and the, the inner blessings that, that can come through that prayerful discipline. Do you ever, uh, when you miss it, when you miss like a day or two of meditation, do you start to kind of feel that whole and just go, I, I need to get back? <laughs> well, I mean, the, rea the reality, uh, David, is that I don't, I don't miss it. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I simply do not miss meditation now. And yeah. um, that's not to be boastful about myself. That's just to say, I know so well that right. the day goes downhill if I neglect meditation. <laughs> well said. Well said. Well, the, the, the other spiritual practice that I'd like to point to, um, yeah. because many people know, know me in relation to this, and it's sort of a bit of fun, but it's not just fun, it's pretty serious. And that is, I practice siesta. And, um, and I, I see letting go, um, you know, early in the afternoon and mm -hmm. lying down and r reminding myself that it's not, it's not all about what I do and it's not all about sort of my energy and relentless pushing on to right. achieve. Uh, it's important to, to let go. And I have this, you know, in, uh, at this time of year, I have a hammock in the garden here in Edinburgh and um, I feel reborn. I mean, I, I experience resurrection every afternoon. <laughs> That's so awesome. And, uh, That's awesome. I describe myself as a siesta fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I actually, I, I really, I'm on board with that because here in Hawaii has a very, um, because we're near the equator, has very, very steady rhythms. You know, I moved from Anchorage, Alaska, you know, four and a half years ago which is more is actually further north in Scotland yeah. and Edinburgh. And so the, the light and there's no rhythm, right? The light changes every day. And sometimes when, you know, five minutes and six minutes in a day. And, yeah. and I always enjoyed some components of that in terms of summertime and, you know, climbing mountains at midnight and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it was really hard spiritually. I found it very difficult to, because of the, but when I moved to Hawaii, the rhythms here are so steady and it's almost like the, the island is calling you to that really. And so here meditating has been way easier, like my, just staying with that practice and getting into yeah. that rhythm. Yeah. Now when I travel, if I go places that don't have that, I feel that intensely, you know, yeah. and, and I'm, I kind of find myself wanting to get back to the island so I can <laughs> just kind of settle in, you know, it's a, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I, I think we have so much to learn at, at this moment in time, you know, many of us from the Christian household are aware that 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 we need to learn so much from other traditions, and the native traditions have been so wise and so consistent about uh, inviting us to pay attention to the elements of earth, air, fire, and water, or to pay attention to the directions of north, south, east, and west. And these, these are profoundly simple and natural ways that we can weave into our spiritual practices and, and an awareness of the seasons as well. Seth, do you have any other kind of final questions or thoughts? Um, yeah. you can, Seth always has more I know. Questions. And we could go can, for days. Yeah, I can go for days. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, I get to see this guy in a couple of weeks. I'm going to Seattle to catch a baseball yeah, game, and it's going to be nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. 
um no i honestly on a personal level just uh, you know the chance to spend some time with you is always cherished the last time i actually got to spend some time with you we had breakfast in seattle when you came came and spoke and i just wanted to say thank you for that i i hope to come visit you um i was actually planning my own personal pilgrimage i was going to do uh but but covid the way covid's going i've I've kind of been putting it off and waiting for that yeah experience to settle but i was going to come to iona and and come through edinburgh and knock on your door and see if you were good I hope you will. <laughs> yeah, he's probably yeah. taking a nap, though. You know, he's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I discovered, <laughs> I discovered at the schools of Celtic consciousness, I, I just, I remember going, wow, he's very serious about these naps. Like this is not <laughs> very, and he, and the way he would speak about it, it was like everybody knew, like, don't bother him. And and but then it's funny because that's become a part of my my rhythm. And and I I do you know being that I spend five to six hours a day working with people in their trauma side, so you know, I, that's yeah. what I do professionally now. I just work with people and, and it's a pretty mystical experience at times, but I, I have these energies running through me and, and, and that's become a very important part. I my, almost like my, my dream world, my meditation world and my yeah. siesta world all kind of blend together. And it's a, yeah. a very important, important rhythm for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And, uh, you know, you, you've touched on, on something that, is very important and and that is the the um the relationship between meditation um and and dream life uh, letting go siesta the, these are all times when we're um when we're letting go uh, of the conscious and and the rational um and that's not to belittle the conscious and the rational. I, I mean, I prize those faculties within us, but it's important to find these disciplines of letting go of just operating up at this level and, and getting in touch with, with, um, with the heart and with the realm of the imaginal and, and, and the, dream, the dream life. And I think meditation often takes us to, to that uh, almost a uh, dreamlike state of, of, of awareness. And, um, you know, one of, one of the chapters in the new book is about the sacred imagination. And uh, we can only access the imagination um, most fully, I believe, by, doing, by, by, by letting go of uh, living predominantly or purely in, in the conscious and rational realm. And uh, opening, allowing ourselves to and uh, to be part of dreaming the way forward, um, because we're in such a mess, um, religiously, nationally, ecologically, uh, we're in such a mess. We need to dream the way forward. And part of what it is to be made in the image of God is to be made in the image of the great dreamer, um, the great imaginer. Um, I love what Thomas Berry says about the universe. Um, Thomas Berry, the eco-theologian, he says, the universe is so amazing, it must have been dreamt into being. And um, I love that. And, and, and then he, uh, very typically of him, um, prophetically goes on to say, uh, we need to dream the way forward. We need to allow ourselves uh, to imagine new ways of seeing, new ways of relating. Um, and I think the pandemic that we're still in the midst of has been a further prompt to uh, to let go uh, of a lot of what we've known and to imagine a new way. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So here's the last thing. 
for the for the show that we do. And on the Voyagers, we do this at the end of the episode. I always ask the guest um, to leave uh, leave a blessing with the audience, and it, whatever it is that you that comes to mind. And um, if is that okay? Yes, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a great believer in blessing, and um, my um, when my father died about um, about ten years ago, uh, he he had a period of uh, quite rapid uh, uh, dementia, and you know he would often not not remember the word that he was looking for or um, the phrase. Um, but something that never left him was the, uh, a prayer of blessing. And, um, you know, in, in the uh, retirement center that he was in, uh, I, I would see him saying to his table companions, now, excuse me, I, I need to bless the people now. And he would go from table to table around the, the dining hall where there may be maybe about 100 people and he would <laughs> visit every table and he would give them the priestly blessing. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, that one. And uh, it was so beautiful to see him knowing the power of blessing was still flowing through him even though so much was being lost in his mind and other faculties but it was also interesting to see the people at the tables because they, uh, people love being blessed of course um, and it's something we can do for 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 one another so the, there's a blessing i love it comes from the western isles of scotland and it um, profoundly makes the link between the sacredness of the earth and, and, um, and the, the world of well-being. Um, so I'd, I'd like to say uh, these ancient words from the Scottish islands, and that is um, a prayer of deep peace. Deep peace of the running wave to you. Deep peace of the flowing air to you. Deep peace of the quiet earth to you. Deep peace of the shining stars to you. Deep peace of the sun of peace to you. Amen. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> JP, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so, so good to be with you and um, let's make it in person sometime, somewhere. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I will, I'll, mm. I'll be one. I'll be a wanderer through your town, and you know, our, we, we, uh, I think our, our great, 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 great grandparents, I think, are buried there in Edinburgh. Well, oh, okay. no, they're up there actually in Persia. They're just they're north, just a bit. They're up by yeah. Dunblane. Yeah, I found uh, them up there. Yeah, yeah. So we are actually we're actually mostly like Scottish. It turns out from both sides. So, yeah, but yeah, we have some families from down in Galloway region. There's some, there's some of our roots there, but. A lot of it's just in Pershire area. So. Well, that ex explains why both of you are slightly crazy. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Sir, thank you we so need... much for your time, sir. I, okay. It was a. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.